Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with voice teacher, musician, and comedian Matt Dell. He's based up in Toronto. He has a career that spans over 20 years that includes receiving Singer-Songwriter of the Year awards in 2009 and 2012 in his hometown and received media praise as one of Niagara's finest musicians. Matt's passions have always been in helping others learn and grow as artists. His approach to teaching uses a biological and physiological method to help students better understand how voice mechanics work, how you are currently using your voice, and how to improve the efficiency of your voice. As a vocal instructor for the past seven years, he has worked with artists whose skills range from beginner to working professionals. He has wonderful stories and insights. Enjoy this interview. What's up, man? How you doing? I'm all right, man. You know, nothing, uh, nothing new and exciting. All right, that's okay. I mean, with what we've lived through the last couple of years, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> Anytime I can get some relaxation, I'll take it, especially with a four-year-old during pandemic. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. Yeah, anytime, Yeah, and I, I understand that full well. Thanks for taking a minute out today, and I think that's the first thing that I want to start off with here is that you're a pretty busy guy, and I think a lot of things that you probably prior to the pandemic did was in person. How did you adapt as somebody that's artistically inclined and working with artists during this time of the pandemic the last couple of years? Uh, it wasn't too bad for me. Um, you know, I'd been teaching for probably about five years by that point when the pandemic started. And uh, I'd already been teaching a lot in person, but a little bit online. Some of my clients that I work with live in Italy or California, where I'm in Toronto, Canada. Um, so I'd already kind of done it before, but once the pandemic hit and we had to be at home, uh, the hardest part of it was trying to figure out how to teach with my four-year-old running around. Uh, and my wife was working at the same time. She's a librarian. That was probably the most difficult part of it. But it, it, it was pretty quickly after that that I kind of figured out I have to get a good setup, kind of set up in a certain room, get good lighting, and I had to research a little bit of that. So it wasn't too bad for me to figure out how to get to that point. If somebody, in layman's terms, there's a lot of things that go into who you are. If, if somebody was to bump into you, let's say a four-year-old that you don't know comes mm -hmm. up to you and says, what do you do for a living? How would you explain that? So I'm an evidence-based voice teacher. So what that basically means is I help make sense of the mechanics of what your body does while singing. So in a lot of cases, people will say things like, sing from the diaphragm or support with more air or sing from the front of the mask, but none of them explain what any of that means. They just tell you to do the thing and you're like, oh, I don't know. So I help you people make sense of what those actual physical mechanics are uh, to make those certain things happen, directing sound, dropping larynx, like all these kinds of things. How did you figure that out? I mean, that, that seems almost scientific. How would you get to a point where you know how to pinpoint those things, not only for yourself, but to be able to teach, and you teach on such a high level. How did that happen? Partially experimental, partially by accident. <laughs> for me, I took a bit of a different route to get to this point. For most of the teachers that I worked with, they had gone to school, they had a master's degree in music, or whatever the case might be. I didn't take that route. How I started was I started out in the music industry. I started being in bands at the age of 15. Uh, by 21, I had my first record deal. I toured Canada by 22, by 25, I had about four songs on the radio. Nothing huge anybody would know, 
but I had four songs played on radio. And as I was going through that, I've always had an interest in biology and studying it. So I wanted to make more sense of what's my voice doing? How am I doing this? How do I make it work better? Certain days on tour where you'd have multiple days in a row, if your voice starts to kind of kick out on you, I wanted to know why that was the case. What did I do? How did I get to this point? So when I started teaching, I kind of fell into the job. The, the long story short of it is I had that my wife finished university. I had come off the road. I didn't really want to tour anymore. So I was a glazer installing windows and high rises. And my ultimate fear of, of life is heights. So after passing out on the job twice because of being afraid, uh, I decided I needed to fix that. So I applied to a job to become a teacher and I started noticing a lot of similar things that people were struggling with when, that I was teaching. So it made me deep dive even further, making me really try to understand what is this person doing? Why am I hearing the sound? What is going on over here? And it was almost like a puzzle to me. And as a, as a big fan of, of video games and being a big gamer, I love puzzles. So really try to put that together was, was how I kind of came about to this. So as a musician, when you were really getting into it, who were inspirations? What musicians did you look up to or maybe emulate? Uh, I came from more of the uh, pop punk and, and punk rock world. So there were bands like uh, Thrice was a really big influence for me. Uh, the Used, Story of the Year, um, Canadian bands like Monine or... Uh, a Canadian band from the 90s, Our Lady Peace. Rain Maida was, was a really big influence to me, such to a point that uh, I remember performing one day and my wife saying, she's like, you make a lot of the faces that Rain Maida does when he's singing. And if you, go, if you know Our Lady Peace, if you don't, check them out and you'll see the faces that he makes. And she's like, you do a lot of those things. And uh, I didn't realize how much he had actually impacted and influenced uh, everything that I did. What was it like to segue from that whole idea of being on the radio and being a musician to what you're doing now kind of behind the scenes? Did you have kind of a, uh, a midlife crisis or was it just kind of a natural thing where you're like, all right, well, this works. I'm still going to be in the industry. How did that whole psychological shuffle happen for you? Yeah, that was probably at about 28, so it was probably more of like a quarter-life crisis than a midlife crisis. But, uh, yeah, not well. I, I had a I had a complete identity crisis, <clears throat> having no idea what it was I was going to do, I was going to be. Um, for years throughout my career, I was told by uh, a lot of family, a lot of friends that this was never something that I was going to be able to do. It's just, it's too tall of a mountain to climb. There's too many obstacles in the way, so on and so forth. So, when I finally decided, I was like, you know what, I, 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 this isn't for me anymore. I don't want to be away from home anymore. It just, that, it just wasn't bringing me passion anymore. I had no idea what my identity was because it was so wrapped up in that. So what I started doing to kind of find myself and get to where I am now was <laughs> I went to Improv Comedy. There's a place called Second City that's in Toronto. It's also in Chicago. Um, and I'd always kind of been interested in comedy and I, I started doing improv and the whole point of improv is to do yes and. So whatever somebody pitches to you, you have to say yes and you add to it. So I took on that approach to my life and I started yes anding just random ideas. So I had an idea to 
write a book. So I randomly was like, okay, I guess I'll just try to write a book. And the deal was, is whatever I tried to do, I had to finish it no matter how bad it was. So I wrote a book. It was only 56 pages long, but I wrote a book. And then I realized novels wasn't for me. So I started writing like kids' books. And one of the kids' books I I wrote, I haven't published it, but I read it to my four-year-old all the time and he loves it. Um, I started cross-stitching, I started crocheting, I, I started doing so many different things to try to figure that part of me out, figure that identity, but music just never left me until I finally realized what I wanted to do. I loved biology, I loved music, and I've always really wanted to be helpful for people and really kind of motivate them and bring them to that next level themselves. So teaching just happened to, to kind of fall into my lap and just make sense. You know, I think the interesting thing about comedy, I had some friends years ago when I was in my 20s that worked at a big comedy club in Kansas City, and he would try to do the improv. And I remember him talking about how hard it is. Like, people have this perception that these people that are funny just pop up on stage and go for it. But there's so much that goes into it that is, is so much more exceedingly difficult than the regular layperson would understand. Oh, my God, yeah. That is that is a hundred percent true. Uh, my very first time doing improv comedy, um, I went up on stage, and the problem with improv comedy is when you're in the audience and you're watching the game, you can think of every idea that you'd pop. Oh, I'd do this here. Oh, I'd do that. Oh, I'd I'd make this funnier. All those ideas hit your head. When you're playing the game, nothing comes to mind. <laughs> so I remember. The very first time I did improv, I went and did a dropping class for 15 bucks. And really all it is, is here's an imaginary ball, catch. Okay, throw it back, catch it. Great. Now I'm ready for a stage performance. So my game was selling a car using only facial expressions. And I'm a musician. I'm not an actor. So I don't know besides just regular and sad, I don't have any other facial expressions. So I went up on stage and I just started pointing and making random noises to try to sell cars to these two girls that were in the scene who desperately tried to help me. Like they really tried to help me get it. And I just wasn't. And I think the whole reason why I wasn't is because I was trying to be the funny in the scene instead of just being part of the scene. With improv, it's not about trying to be funny. It's about offering to the other person and helping them be funny. In return, they'll support you the same way. And then in the end, as I've learned, uh, if you're not funny in the scene, but the scene went really well, it doesn't matter. So the end of the scene had me making noises and pointing, and the person running the, the scene had said, stop pointing, so I stopped pointing. And I went, hmm? And he said, stop making noises. So I stopped making noises. And I stood frozen in front of an audience of like 50 people. And he says, quick, do the first thing that comes to mind. So I dropped to my knees and pretended to cry to beg them to buy the car. Everyone laughed. They ended the scene. And afterwards, the guy running the scene, who knew this was my first time, had said, do you know why everybody laughed? And my answer was, yeah, because you're all a bunch of jerks. And he said, no. He said, because... You weren't trying to be funny. You just reacted. You just did. 
And in day-to-day life, that's what we do. We react. We don't overthink. Now, in some cases, we do overthink. But when we do things well and we have confidence about it, we're not overthinking it. We're just doing it, whatever the case might be. And that was a big part of uh, a big learning lesson for improv, not being anywhere near as easy as it looks. You know, and I think the other part of it, too, is it's it's about being relatable and being real. Like, when I really see good comedians, it's just about bringing up, like, that's why George Carlin was so timeless. There were Mm -hmm. things that he was bringing up that were totally real that a lot of people wouldn't say because there's this corporate business safe mentality that people have. And, of course, they slip into your world as a comedian because they want to get away from that. But at the end of the day, it's being relatable to it. Like when you're getting down and begging, it's like there's a part of us that does that when we hit that wall, and that's relatable. It's real, you know? Yeah, the the weird thing with art in general, art in general, whether it be music, whether it be comedy, whether it be anything, is being relatable. But the way in which to be relatable is to try not to be relatable (laughs) in a way. Yeah. Like – if you try to force being relatable to things, people can see through that. But with George Carlin, the big thing with him is he was just mad at what was going on in the world politically. And by being angry about it and talking about it, that became relatable. John Stewart being the same way, uh, Trevor Noah being the same way, John Oliver being the same way. Like that's how they become relatable. But if you, if you try to force that and, and try to give into that narrative thinking that's what you need to do, uh, it, it doesn't work. And, and music is the same. If you try to write music thinking this is what people want to hear, that doesn't work for anybody. You've got to write stuff that, that means something to you. I remember way back in the beginning of my career, as I was writing stuff, somebody had said to me, they're like, your music sounds like it's got a 90s vibe to it. And I said, yeah, you know, the, some of my influence comes from back then. It's kind of like new age emo pop punk with like 90s kind of rock and they're like well that's not what's popular right now and my answer always was like okay that's fine then some people will dig it and some people won't and i stuck to that for quite a long time until eventually as all trends do they re-return so eventually like a 90s vibe kind of started coming and we can see a huge wave of that now with r&b and everything like we're seeing that big 90s return um yeah, so anyways, as I digress, <laughs> you have to be relatable by not being relatable. Yeah, well, no, and I get that, yeah. I get, I, I totally get that, because I think there was a lot of people, even when you talk about the 90s, that released songs that probably had no idea that it was going to go anywhere. I mean, I think even, sometimes I watch these documentaries like the Kurt and Courtney, where they were just kind of, even at the height of what they were doing, I know they were really drug-addled, there was still a level of them that was kind of daring headlights. They were just trying to, like exist and and just do what they've always done. And I think that's the part of it. If it's not forced, then unfortunately we've entered this whole like Kardashian kind of world where everything's under a microscope and, and our perception of reality is so so skewed, which is obviously why our political process and lines <laughs> in this country have been so blurred. <laughs> you know? Yeah, legit that is that is definitely that is definitely a case. I I, I wonder, and, I, and I've watched interviews of someone like Dave Grohl kind of talking about it, but I wonder how Kurt, Nirvana, Foo Fighters, anybody like that would have, would have handled 
trying to make it in the music industry today with, with social media standards. Um, it, it, they, no, don't get me wrong, back then came with its own challenges, of course. With social media, you can be broadcasted to anybody anywhere at any time, where back then it was much different. You're, you're kind of dealing with companies a lot more. Um, but I, with social media being as, as it is, with that kind of, as you said, with that Kardashian level uh, uh, brand marketing that has to be done with everything under a microscope, Although the internet has become a great tool to expose musicians, the big problem I'm finding with it now is that back in the 90s and before, it would kind of, if you were a band trying to get a fan's attention, it would kind of be like standing in a room with 10 other musicians all screaming off the top of their lungs for one person's attention. And now it's like standing in a room with 30 million musicians all at the same time screaming at, at the top of their lungs for one person's attention, which in turn makes people's attention spans a lot shorter because they can just constantly, you know, uh, content is constantly at their fingertips. There's, there's centuries of content out there that, that you could go through and still not go through it all. And it's, it's still building every single day. So I, I wonder how, how people then would have handled now. I, I find that interesting. You're totally right, too. It's like the way that people would, like, present material is totally different. And I think there's a level of social media that just kind of muddles it. I remember back in the 90s, I was really into the grunge scene. I went to Seattle in, I think, 95, 96. And, of course, I'm downtown going through old bins of, like, Pearl Jam demos and mm -hmm. all this stuff. And one night I go to a club and... and um we're watching this band, and I, you know, I'm, I've been in Kansas City my whole life, so the way that people interacted was totally different in Seattle at that time. And at one point, the drummer was kicking, he was doing his bass, and the mic fell off of a little stand that was up there. And some dude ran up and got it and put it up there, and the person I was with said, damn, that's the drummer from Soundgarden. And no one, mo no one mocked him. And at that point, Soundgarden was just as big as anybody else in that scene. And they were just like, that's the scene here. We don't get involved with these musicians. If better walk through, you let them be. My point playing off what you're saying is, is that in the social media era, a billion people would have had that posted. It would have been a big deal. We would have picked it apart. But in that room, we all just knew it. We didn't say anything except to our pals, and it didn't become this big, huge thing, and we just knew the drummer for Soundgarden is a cool cat. And we're up here in Seattle on this scene and it's obviously cool for a reason. And that was it. And we went on with our lives. So I think based on what you're saying, I think, and, and, and I don't want to sound like an old guy because I have teenagers <laughs> myself, but dude, it's like, it's different now. It's like we, everything is under a microscope and we pick everything apart in a way that we never did before. Yeah. The, the one thing, and, and I, I, you know, I don't want to knock them by any means, but the one thing that I'm just not a fan of is the vocal coach reacts videos. And I've had people ask me, they're like, oh, are you going to do them? Are you going to start doing them on YouTube or TikTok or something? No, I, I don't want to. Mainly because if, if you send me a link of someone's performance, whoever it is, it doesn't matter. And I listen to it and I'm like, oh gosh, that's, they're, they're having this pitch trouble. They're doing this, they're doing that. Da, 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 da. My video would be 15 seconds long of, yeah, maybe they were tired or sick. Join me next time. Like that would be it because who knows? That's, that's one clip. That would be like if somebody took a video clip 
of you tripping over the sidewalk and then broadcast all over the internet as if you don't know how to walk properly. It's too fine-tuned. Musicians are not perfect. We have times where we'll sing wrong notes or we strain a bit or you're playing guitar and you hit the wrong note during the lead or you fall off time for like half a second when you're drumming. These things happen. And, and the thing that kind of sucks about now compared to back then, kind of being in the same boat of not sounding old, because uh, I'm 36 now, is the fact that part of what was great about live performing was some of the imperfection. Some of the greatest shows that I've seen and been a part of. I remember watching uh, a band, Monine, here from Canada. And we were watching one of the gigs. And as they're playing, they haven't, they haven't been a band for a little bit. They come back for this reunion. And it's an outdoor festival. And it starts raining. And it starts raining hard. So they're into the first song. And the rain is going directly into the, set, into the stage. It short circuits the bass amp. And then halfway through the second song, it then short circuits the guitar amp and then the drum mics and then the microphone. It, it kills everything. And they still have probably by this point, another 35 minutes left of their set. And one of the most magical things I've ever seen is they all just put their instruments down and the guitar player had just an acoustic in his hand and in the rain walked up to the front of the stage and just sang and an audience of probably 5,000 people sang every lyric to every song for the whole rest of that 35 minute set. And that imperfection that some people might be like, oh, they should have covered their amps in plastic or done it, blah, blah, blah. You would have missed out on that magic. Like that would have never happened. I remember playing a show once where I was so sick. I lost my voice entirely. But when you're on tour, when you're playing, you, you, you got to do what you got to do. The show must go on. And the bass player before I went up uh, asked me, he's like, what are you going to do? And in my response to my voice, I just went, I don't know, I'm going to try something. And I just went up on stage and I looked at the audience and I said, I'm so sorry. I can't sing tonight. Let's just all have a good time. I threw the mic in the audience and I jumped on top of them because that's the punk rock grunge thing to do. And for the whole half hour set, we all just sang every lyric to every song, the whole audience of me. And it was magical to see a bunch of people, like a room full of 80 people who know the words to a song that I wrote in my bedroom. But if that kind of mistake hadn't happened, if that, if that inconsistency didn't happen, I would have never experienced such a magical moment that I, I remember and gives me goosebumps still to this day. You know, covering jazz, which is the main thing that I do, I realize, and it took me a while, it seems kind of rudimentary on paper that, you know, they do one thing, they, 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 everything, every time they get on stage, they're not quite sure what they're going to do, and it's always going to be new, it's never going to be done again. And I remember one time I was down on 18th to find the, the fabled Kansas City Cradle of Jazz, and there was a guy from Cincinnati named Phil DeGregg, and he was just like a dude that you would not expect would be as proficient on the piano as he was, and he was amazing, and he had a great band, and there was a storm outside, and you could see the trees bending and everything going, and all of a sudden, everything flickers, and everybody that was plugged in an electric goes off, and he didn't stop. He just kept going, and they kept going, and I think the electricity may have been out for like 30 or 40 seconds, maybe even a minute, and they just went right back into it like nothing happened. And that's the kind of thing right there where it's like they just, they just kept going. But I will never forget that show. There's a lot of, 
moments that people remember from shows, but that one specifically was just like that. That was it. That there was something magical about that. Yeah, and and you miss out on on those opportunities when it comes to things. And, and you know, I tell students all the time if they're interested in performing, a common thing that I'll hear from them is, uh, I'd rather wait until I'm ready. <clears throat> I'm preparing the song, but I don't feel ready yet. Realistically, you're never ready for anything until you just go and do it. Because that's how you're going to find out what things you need to improve, what might be missing, how the crowd reacts to whatever you're playing, writing, whatever. Right? And part of one of the things that you learn live is you learn that when moments like that happen, when the power goes out, lights go out, whatever, and you're playing, and then 30 seconds later, the power comes back on and the whole band joins in, that's, that's not because they're just talented, born-with-it players. That's because they've been playing for so many years, have played so many shows, have, have made so many mistakes, and had so many weird things happen on stage that it just doesn't affect them anymore. They're just used to it. They just know how to seamlessly kind of deal with it. And, and it's just, it's strictly from allowing yourself to have those moments happen. I think about that in this modern day and era right now with the way Chris Rock has handled what he's gone through. And I think he's done it masterfully. It's like, that's the reason why he's such a good comedian because from, from the minute after that whole incident happened with Will Smith to right now, he's slowly starting to talk about it, but he's also like, if you guys really want to talk about this, I'll do it at the right place at the right time. He's in control of this, and it's interesting, just like with you and your improv, like what you have to do on the fly. And, God, I mean, what would, what would a lot of people do after the entire world watches you get assaulted by somebody? You know, there's a million different things that he could have done, but he stood up there, he went through it, and he got over it, and he still two days later went to Boston and performed a show. Yeah, comedians live – a whole different life than a lot of musicians do. And it's not that I haven't had my fair share of bottles thrown at me over the years. Cause I've had a couple, <clears throat> but comedians, like the one thing getting into standup, I have done a little bit of it. I'm not great at it, but I have done a little bit of it. And the one thing you have to kind of prepare yourself is for heckle. Now what Chris Rock had to put up with, that's, that's far more than a heckle per se, but the, the best way that, you deal with a situation like that is in a moment where control is taken away from you. You don't let the rest of the world dictate that further control being taken. You don't let when people come up and they're like, we'll talk about this, say this, say this. You don't have to be like, okay, well I'll just say everything. Cause maybe you haven't had time to collect yourself. Maybe you need a moment. Yeah. If I got hit in the face, guess what? I need a moment. <laughs> so taking that second to, to, to take a step back, I'm going to talk about this, but now's not the moment. That's taking charge, and that's taking, that's taking that control back for yourself. And, and as a performer, you have to do that quite often. Hopefully never for, for anybody listening to this ever having to deal with something like that. But you have to do it often where something happens. You're playing a show, and somebody drops a plate, or somebody's yelling something, or someone gets into a bar fight, and you're constantly having to take back control. I, like, I remember playing shows where <clears throat> there'd be arguments in the audience. And by the time the argument is finished, whether the people get thrown out or not, it's a real atmosphere of awkward in that room. 
And then nothing's better than going back to playing music now. Let's all have fun. That's really hard to get that room back. But you have to do your best to take that control back. And I think for something like Chris, with lots of experience that he's had, he handled that r real well. So is somebody, let's put this kind of in, in, in a more hyper, uh, like a more magnified context here and put your powers to be here. As a vocal coach, who out there that maybe the public doesn't realize, who out there that's a singer is natural at it? They were born with it. It's not that they don't work at it, but they came at it naturally. Contrast that with who's out there right now that's big, that's really had to work their ass off to get to where they're at. I can tell you who's big now who really had to work hard. Um, and that's Ed Sheeran. So whether you're a fan of Ed Sheeran or you're not a fan of Ed Sheeran, there's a video of him on a talk show. Um, I have a video of it on, on, a, on my TikTok that I have. And he talks about, you know, people saying that you're either born with talent or whatever, and that's not the case. You really, really have to work at it. And he plays a clip from an audio file that he has of him singing when he was younger, <clears throat> playing guitar relatively well. And then he starts singing, and it's crackly, it's, you know, strainy, it's out of pitch, just a million things that you would listen to that. And I think for most people listening to that would hear it and be like, Oh, that guy will never make it. That'll never happen for him in a million years. But because of constantly working at it, constantly practicing and kind of almost obsessively, he got better and better and better because that's what talent is. Talent isn't entirely what you're born with. It's what you do with it. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't born with talent. You know, for myself, I've always been able to play by ear. So I started playing piano at the age of two, just listening to watching Sesame Street and walking up to the piano at my grandmother's house and just figuring out what the theme song was on piano at about two, two and a half. But what I did with that skill is I spent years, decades honing that skill, being able to learn chord progressions, memorize those, you know, what those things sound like, really kind of honing my pitch and, and, and all these different things that took years and years and years to try to figure out, you know, and, and you have some people who are naturally talented. Um, you got Ariana Grande, you got Beyonce, you got those people like, yeah, they're, they're naturally talented. Yet also they've been singing since they were three. They had parents that threw them into voice lessons, whatever else. And, and, and they've been singing since they were young. It, it's one of the, weird things with, with singers. We're kind of led to, to believe that these people are just incredible from the second that, they, that, they, that they're born. But in reality, what you don't see is the years and years and years of all this practice and, and skill that they've built up from an extremely young age. So by the time you do see them, they've, they've, hone their craft. It's, it's the concept of the overnight success. It's an overnight success that took 22 years to get to. My, when I finally kind of started getting somewhere, people said to me, like, how does it feel to you know, all of a sudden blow up and become this overnight success? I'm like, it feels like it took 12 years. 
because it did. I think about that with bands. Like, I, I remember hearing about how the Beatles and U2, it just took a, almost like a decade, if not more, of playing in CD clubs and low-level places. And people do. There's that mentality where they think that you just arrived there. But, man, that's the reason why VH1's Behind the Music was so indispensable back in the day. That was, like, I think the public's really first, like, I end like how the process works and every single band, singer, musician had to go through a level of rigor that's not out there when you see them in a packed stadium. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably going to Canadianize myself in this response, but have you ever heard of the band Tragically Hip? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so uh, the Tragically Hip, big Canadian band, uh, I guess the rumor has it when they first started as this band they were this cover band and they were fired from their original gig because the bar owner was like you guys got no talent you got no you know spirit you got nothing so you'll never go anywhere so i don't want you and fired them you know and and this is this is a story that we hear constantly from so many i think oasis is in the same boat like there's so many bands that had that had that experience like that's part of you know, not, not to, not to go off, but that's part of what makes me nervous of today's industry too, with social media, with, uh, um, America's got talent, X factor, all of these things is that it's kind of starting to breed this aspect that if you aren't just naturally great, you don't have what it takes. So if you go to America's got talent, for instance, you go up on stage, if you don't get that golden buzzer bang, then you'll never make it in your whole entire life. And that ain't true. That's not true at all. I think the majority of people who have made it, even nowadays, probably wouldn't get that golden buzzer or even any buzzer at all. They would have to work and grind coming up from the bottom. Uh, when you start putting music out, you start putting music out on social media to nobody caring. If you, tar- if you start uh, Twitch streaming and you're, you're a musician, nobody comes to watch you. But that's how it all starts. It's not this thing that like, oh, yeah, I was doing dishes one day and I was singing. I was like, yeah, I guess I'll be on TV. And then you just show up and now I'm famous. Like, that's not how it works. Um, Kelly Clarkson, uh, uh, Katy Perry, the same. When you see Kelly Clarkson, you think to yourself like, oh, that person came on American Idol and boom, made it. She had another record deal before that. And even after she made it from American Idol, that first album did okay, but they eventually dropped her. Avril Lavigne picked her up, wrote that next album with her, and pushed that one. Like there was, there was experience she had before going into that, and still other things that had to be done to get her to that next level after that. That, that stage, that screen that you watch on your phone when you see that great person, that's not always the, the thing of like, this is how you make it, you're just great or nothing. It's not that. It's grinding, years of grinding. You've worked with some pretty big clientele, and I'm curious, and I know you have to keep yourself separate from being starstruck or being kind of enamored by what, you know, their resume might be. But who was the first person that you worked with that had pretty high stature that you had a hard time separating yourself from being, you know, being cognizant of who they are and aware of the job that you had to do? Probably there was two. So the very first one that I had was Wes Chatham. Um, he is, he played, he was one of the characters on the hunger games and he's in a, a big prime TV show. And when I met him, I didn't know who he, I, I'm not a big starstruck actor kind of person. Uh, so when I met him, I didn't know him, but 
when he was telling me his resume when I first met him, I started feeling, and I was kind of new to it being a teacher too, so I started feeling my heart kind of pound through my eyeballs and thinking to myself, oh my God, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to teach this guy. And the, the great thing was, is he was just very sweet and very nice and very kind. Like, could have become best friends if we had that kind of time. So nice. The, the biggest one so far was Dacre Montgomery. So he is, plays Billy on Stranger Things. And I was hired to uh, work with him on a movie called The Broken Hearts Gallery. And I hadn't watched Stranger Things yet. It, it kind of takes me a long time to get it. I haven't even seen Game of Thrones. It takes me a while to get into certain TV shows. So when I, when I got the job from a, a friend of mine who recommended me, I got there and the girl who brought me to this condo that, that he was staying at with his girlfriend uh, had said, okay, just when you go up there, remember, no autographs, no pictures, you know, just, just get to the job. And I said, I was like, don't, don't worry about it. I don't know who this guy is. So it's okay. It's, it, I, we're going to be fine. And I went up there and I met them and we started working on some stuff and they were just chill. Like we talked about uh, his girlfriend was playing Mario Kart and Zelda Breath of the Wild. So we talked about that for a bit. It wasn't until I got home that night that I said it to my best friend, Dan. And he went, wait, Dacre Montgomery? And I said, yeah. He's like, do you know who that is? And I said, no. And he started sending me all these videos to see who this person was. And that's all of a sudden when it hit me. And I went, oh, no. This person could crush me if I make the wrong move. Um, so I went in the next day to, to set, to film set, and I was panicked. So the first one was in his condo. The other two were on set. And I get there. I call the, uh, the producer and I say, I'm here to work with Baker. Oh, shooting's gone a little bit longer. So it's, it's going to take a little bit longer. We can't do it at like three o'clock. It was scheduled for three hours later. They're like, yeah, shooting's still not done yet. If you want, you could just go home. I had driven up from St. Catharines at that point, which is like Niagara Falls. So it's, it's about an hour and a half away to Toronto. So I'm like, I, I don't really want to go home. I'll just wait. Don't worry about it. I'll wait however long it takes. So another two hours from that point, he's finally done. And uh, I go, I get brought to his trailer and I go into his trailer and he, uh, we start working and he looked at me. He's like, so how, where have you been sitting for the last like number of hours? And I said, just in my car. And he goes, wait a minute, they don't, they didn't give you a trailer. And I said, no, of course they don't give me a trailer. Like, why would they do that? And he goes, no, 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 that won't stand. I came in the next day. I called the producer and they said, yeah, uh, we'll come get, we'll come get you. Somebody came and got me and walked me to a trailer that had my name on the door. And I walked inside and I was like, this is weird. And when I saw, when I saw Dacre, he's like, did you get your trailer? And I said, I did. He goes, yep, you're welcome. <laughs> I guess he yelled at production for not having one. Wow. Yeah, but he That's was awesome. so nice. Like as much as he plays that bully guy, that Billy dude, such a nice dude. Yeah, um, I'm so glad I asked that question because that's the kind of story I want to hear. That's, that's wonderful. Um, so let me ask you this. As a highly driven, artistically inclined person, you know, sometimes we're only as good as the shoulders we stand on. Who would you consider role models or a hero for you? It's a, it, it's a good question. You know, um, I have to think about that. Like there's, there's, there's lots of, 
musicians and, and comedians and other things that, that, I, that I've looked at and, and kind of looked up to. Um, like at the time, I remember a band called Day to Remember, them talking a lot. When podcasts kind of first started becoming a big deal, I listened to one with, with, uh, with somebody and they were talking about how their tours were terrible. Like their van would break down and shows would be double booked and they'd get there and it'd be canceled or whatever. And I, I looked up to those kinds of people, not because it, it made me feel better when things didn't go wrong, but because it inspired me to constantly, constantly, constantly keep going amid disappointment. Cause that's, that's the thing when it comes to a music career. I think one thing that misguides some people is they'll look at somebody and go, how do I quote unquote make it? How do I make it? And, and the answer is it's different for everybody. How one makes it is not quite how the other one does. And, and to try to get there is messy. You make mistakes, you're trying new stuff. So when you go on tour, you know, I don't know how, how, how it's been for most, but I know for myself, I slept in my trunk on tour for a long time. I had a mattress. I, I, I brought down the back seat and I slept back there winter, summer, whatever, because I just had to get wherever I needed to go. And, and part of what motivated and inspired me to keep going no matter what was the stories from all of these different bands that I looked up to the thrice story of the, like all these people. And that really motivated me to, to kind of keep going. But, and this, this may sound sappy, but the biggest one that has motivated me the most is not a star. It's not, it's not a big person. It, it's, it's literally been my wife. You know, she's been there since the very beginning of all of this. Like, yeah, I had that stint between 15 and 21 when I met her, but when things kind of started doing well, she was there for me. The big times, the, the worst possible times. And she was there to praise me when things are going well and talk to me when they didn't. And when I kind of decided to come off the road and <laughs> realized construction was not for me uh, and I wanted to become a voice teacher, she was in my corner. She motivated and she, she pushed me to keep going. When I left the school that I was teaching at for uh, about six and a half years, seven years, to now go on and do the company I do on my own now, she was the one that pushed me and inspired me to do it. So it's, it's like a combination between those two. So if you could meet anybody alive on planet Earth right now, who would it be? Who would you love to meet? Anybody on planet Earth that I can meet right now. Um, you know what? I, I think funny enough, it, it would probably be Conan O'Brien. Like if I had to throw it anywhere, yes, I've been a musician for my entire life. But as, as, as art goes, if you're a musician, you desire to be a comedian. And if you're a comedian, you desire to be a musician. And I think with Conan, like he he loves music and he, he talks all about the Beatles and he talks all about so many different things musically, but also understands so much about comedy as well. And just to kind of 
not starstruck by him, but just to sit down and just to talk to him about those things, you know, how they intersect in his life um, and, and just talk shop about both of them, I think would be entertaining. It'd be funny. It'd be interesting. Um, so I, I, I think him. I agree. You know, my dog is named Coco. We got her right. <laughs> she went to the Tonight Show and I, I named her that. She's a red Australian shepherd dog. And this morning, my son, uh, we, were, we were saying her name. I was just sitting there. I was like, just sometimes it strikes me. It's like I named that dog after Conan O'Brien. I love him. I used to watch him all the time. That was one of my happiest times when he got the Tonight Show gig. And, you know, yeah, Conan's, Conan's a genius. In fact, I work my day job. I work in a school district in Grandview, which Kansas City's massive. And... Mark Pender graduated from Grandview High School in 75. I got to interview him one time. And he's driving up 101 in a convertible, and we're just talking. And it was right when he was going to The Tonight Show. And uh, anyway, so, yeah, I've, I've been a big fan, so I'm in the same boat. Um, so what has been the best fan letter you've ever gotten back? Like something that someone said to you about what you did that you always remember? There's two. Um, I, I remember uh, a girl that I went to high school with, her name was Cheryl, um, her daughter, uh, young, probably, I think at the time, like six, she, like, she messaged me, Cheryl did, and she said, look, this is weird, but can you come over and, and play for my daughter's birthday? She's a big fan of your music, and, and she would love this. And she's like, I'm sure you're busy. I'm sure you're on the road or whatever else. But if you have time, can you? And I got back to her and said, yeah, sure, absolutely. Like, I don't mind coming by for 10, 15 minutes for what I got time for, and I'll, I'll play for her for sure. And I did. And when I got there, she was excited. She got teary-eyed. It was, it was really emotional. I played songs for her that she wanted. And afterwards, she gave me uh, a, a drawing that she drew of us. And I thought that was like, I thought that was super cute. <laughs> that, that was, that really got me. And then um, there was another girl also uh, a bit younger too. Uh, her name was, her name was Lakin. And, and, you know, she said lots of really nice things and, and kind of the same thing gave me like this really nice little picture. It's like those things that, that I get that really kind of touch my heart because this is something I've wanted to do since I had, before I have memories and, and to look at these kids who, who look at you as if you're this big person, as if you're this real big somebody when you don't feel that way, and it really makes you realize what kind of impact you can have on somebody's life. Even if it means taking 10 minutes out of your day to go to a six-year-old birthday party and play it. Uh, and, and what kind of difference that makes for that person. And those, those two are probably like the big ones that like really got me. So everyone has a perception of you, an idea of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans clients but ultimately you live your life you have a perception of you who do you think you are successfully flawed is is how i i look at myself um in the sense of you know i i have 
I have my flaws. I have my imperfections. Um, the majority of how I've gotten to where I am today is because of the mistakes I've made to learn the lessons to get me to where I am. And, you know, the thing I try to tell my students, the thing I try to constantly tell myself is that you can be flawed, but that's okay. We all are. It doesn't make it bad. It, it, it's what makes you the better person that you become. We are not our past mistakes. We are the results of the lessons and successes that come from those. And that's something that I, I constantly try to tell myself all the time. Beautiful, Matt. Hey, Matt, thank you for opening up. I appreciate your time. Good luck with everything. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, and music around the globe. If you want to hear more interviews, you can visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Mm-hmm.